This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, we have Dinosaur of the Day, Hadrosaurus. I say this often, but I'm surprised we haven't ever done that one. It's a pretty big name dinosaur. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of big name dinosaurs, <laughs> turns out. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> we also have a bunch of dinosaur news. Uh, this week, we want to thank some of our Patreon supporters who help us to keep our podcast going and help us to get to SVP, especially this time of year. So this week, we'd like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Tristan Jules, Grandpa Dino, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklov, Dr. Eigenbot, Taylor, Lori, Risa, Kelly, and Manda. And Kelly and Manda both separately joined within the last week. So thank you both very much. Yeah, thank you so much. If you remember from last week's episode, we talked about SVP is coming up in, was it one week by the time this episode airs? Yeah. And we really like to send a big thank you to all of our patrons around SVP time because it's our biggest expense of the year because it's pricey to get there and pay for the hotel and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Plus, it's a huge amount of dinosaur information. It is. excited to share. Yeah, it's great. We usually get a few good interviews in and things like that, too. Yeah, so... Thank you, everyone who has been supporting us. It really means a lot to us and helps us keep this podcast going. Jumping into the news, we have another new dinosaur. Yay. Because we have to have new dinosaurs all the time. (laughs) And this article was written by Min Wang and others. This one's another one of those dinosaur bird transitional species. And its name is Jinguofortis perplexus. Perplexus. That's great. Yeah. So Jinguofortis is Jinguo, which is Mandarin for female. It's like one of the lesser known usages. It looks like it's kind of an older usage. And then Fortis is Latin for strong. So it, they say it means female warrior, <laughs> which is kind of cool. And then perplexus comes from obviously perplexing, or at least it's the original Latin for perplexing. And it's because of the unusual mix of bird and non-avian dinosaur traits that are in Jinguofortis. It's a pretty interesting name. Yeah, it is interesting. And it was found in Xixia Weichang County in Hebei Province, China. And that's kind of actually unsurprising if you've been following the bird-like dinosaur discoveries over the last few years, because that's kind of where a lot of them come from. And this one's about 127 million years old, which puts it in the early Cretaceous, also kind of the common time frame for these transitional bird dinosaurs and 
they found a complete and articulated skeleton with feathers. Those were their words for in the discovery, which is pretty awesome. You don't see a lot of dinosaurs that are found like the entire body. But in this area, I guess you kind of do because they're so small. Sometimes the whole thing gets fossilized together. Yeah, I was just thinking the size probably helps. Yeah, for sure. This one is very interesting. So I'm just going to go through some of the interesting characteristics about it. So it has teeth in its premaxilla. And the premaxilla is in the very front of the mouth. In some dinosaurs, it's really obvious where it's separated from the rest of the maxilla. So for example, on like Spinosaurus or Dilophosaurus, they have like this extra little bump sort of at the end of their mouth that sticks out with more teeth and it's kind of at a different angle sometimes. So it's the very tip of the teeth. It's kind of like the analogy would be our front teeth. So a lot of dinosaurs, especially the bird transition dinosaurs, don't have teeth there. They have teeth more towards the back of their mouth and then the front is just more of a normal beak. But this guy has teeth all the way into the front of the mouth, it looks like. They couldn't see all of the teeth, though, because its mouth is kind of closed, and I don't know, maybe they couldn't get it in a CT scanner in time, or who knows what, but they said they're not really sure the exact extent of all the teeth. I think they saw, like, six or seven in various spots. So they know that it had teeth more than most dinosaurs, because if it has teeth in the front there, probably has them down a lot of the mouth, because... Why wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah, and that's the place where you're most likely to lose them, is in the front. One example is Archaeopteryx does not have teeth in its premaxilla. And a lot of times people talk about Archaeopteryx as being sort of like the prototypical transition between dinosaurs and birds. But it's a really weird one because it actually occurs a lot earlier than this formation. It's out of Germany. And it has a lot of characteristics that are more bird-like than this dinosaur. But it also has some that are more dinosaur-like. Perplexing, one might say. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. Someone should name a dinosaur after that. (laughs) (laughs) So Archaeopteryx doesn't have those teeth in the front of its mouth, but Archaeopteryx does have a very long tail, much like a lot of dinosaurs did, the non-avian dinosaurs. This guy, Jinguofortis, has a much shorter tail. It's basically just a pygo style like you see in modern birds. But yeah, so it's kind of like it's more bird-like than Archaeopteryx in one way with the tail, less like it with the teeth. And then it also has a fused shoulder girdle, which in other words, in the technical jargon, is a scapulocoracoid because there's a scapula, which is the same as our scapula, our shoulder blade. And then birds also have something called a coracoid, which is a separate part of their shoulder sort of assembly. (laughs) And in like, we don't even really have it as a separate bone. It's just kind of, if you looked at the evolution, it's just kind of like embedded in that scapula somewhere. So we just don't even talk about it anymore. But a lot of other vertebrates have separate shoulder blades, and they talk about the shoulder girdle, just like people talk about the pelvic girdle because it's separate bones, same sort of thing. But it's really weird because usually you don't see these bones fused together on animals that have wings because, for example, on Archaeopteryx, they're not fused together, and it appears to help birds with their increased mobility of their arm which you need when you're flying because you have to move your wings around and Archaeopteryx again it appeared 25 million years before Jinguofortis so it's another weird perplexing little trait there going a little bit more into how that geometry works the scapula and the coracoid kind of meet at the same point where the arm attaches so if they're fused together it just reduces the flexibility of that area and you really need a flexible joint 
when you're flying because wings don't just go up and down. They have a little bit more of a complex motion and you have to be able to fold them and things like that. So it's kind of important to have that be flexible. So the authors even considered that maybe it couldn't fly, that maybe it had transitioned from a flying dinosaur and it was transitioning back towards the land or something. And one reason to think that is that ostriches and some other modern flightless birds <laughs> actually have those refused together too. So it's a very strange dinosaur, but most likely what it is, is it's just like another sort of random offshoot from some ancestral dinosaur and it's evolving flight in a different kind of way. And they think that it was evolving flight because it has very well-preserved wings, including feathers as well. So it would be pretty strange for them to have such great wings if they were flightless. Ostriches do not have the kind of wings <laughs> that this bird has. Right. The feathers are a little bit weird. They're unusually long and narrow, but they do look like they're the type of feathers that you would use for flying. And they identified both primary and secondary flight feathers, which are things that you know about if you're into birds. <laughs> and at first glance, it really does look very bird-like. I, when I was looking at the paleo art of it, I thought it looked like a pigeon with a bigger beak. Oh, that'd be scary. Also with the teeth. Yeah, <laughs> it would. It also has claws sticking out of the front of its wings mm. because unlike birds, modern birds, where their wing is their entire arm, on this guy, it's like the arm goes maybe halfway down the wing and then it's like hand finishes out the rest of the wing. So there are claws from, you know, the the beginning fingers sticking out in that front edge of the wing there. So, yeah, it's clearly not your average bird when you look closely <laughs> at it. So this is another one of those interesting in-between dinosaurs and not really right in between. It's kind of like the sauropodomorph from last week where it's just sort of an oddball, like how does this fit in, just making the evolution more complicated because it it just kind of proves that it's not that simple straight line of evolution that people like to think about where it's like first birds lost teeth and then they grew wings and then their tail shrunk and then they had better feathers and like that sort of step-by-step -step process. It's like, well, then there was this one that had a really good shoulder for flying but then there was this one 25 million years later that didn't have it anymore. <laughs> so which one is the ancestor to the modern bird is just kind of anybody's guess because it's such a messy jumble of traits. Is it another case of need more fossils? Yes, definitely. And if you're wondering where this bird is, it's housed at the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, also known as IVPP, which uses this logo that just looks just like the Sinclair sauropod. <laughs> I think of it every time I see this logo. But it's in Beijing, and I think it has like the largest collection of anywhere in Asia. But they do have a public display space. I don't think it's on display. I think they mostly display, you know, the big dinosaurs that attracts the crowds. But if you're in the area and you want to check, it's on our dinosaur map. Yeah, the one on our website. Up next, we have another new dinosaur discovery. This one was written by Elizabeth Malafea and others. Hopefully I got that right. And published in the Journal of Paleontology, which is open access. That's nice. And thanks to Portuguese Eagle for sharing it with us. Unfortunately, even though it's a new dinosaur discovery, it's not a new official dinosaur because they didn't find enough to actually make it a diagnostic find. Need more fossils. Yeah, or more bones from this one fossilized creature. 
So this one is a new allosauroid, and it's likely a carcharodontosaurid that was found in Portugal, about 45 kilometers north of Lisbon, if you're in the Portugal area and you want to know where exactly to go. <laughs> so it's a carcharodontosaurid. I'm just going to assume that it is because that's how they titled their paper. And if you're not familiar, those are those mostly South American, African dinosaurs that are sort of T-Rex looking meat eaters. They're not quite as bulky as T-Rex, but they're still just massive in general. At least Carcharodontosaurus was just huge and it had really sharp teeth for eating other dinosaurs and other animals that were unfortunate enough to be around it. Yep. And there are a surprising number of dinosaurs that are already known from Portugal. They kind of lucked out in having a big late Jurassic chunk of rock sticking up out of the ground. And it's, it looks like it's hundreds, maybe thousands of square kilometers. It's quite a bit of space to find new fossils in. And then the area is also pretty devoid of plants. So the pictures of it kind of remind me of Colorado and Utah, sort of that late Jurassic badlands looking <laughs> area, which is just like kind of the best environment to look for fossils in. Nothing in your way. Mm -hmm. They said that this specific find has a lot of features in common with an earlier find from Portugal. But unfortunately, they only found about a third of the tail and a foot. <laughs> Those are like the two main things. Some other little fragments too. Oh yeah, that's not much. No. The third of the tail that they found was about five and a half feet or 1.7 meters long when they sort of reassembled it. It's a long tail. It is. That's only a third of it. And then when you scale that up with a reconstruction of neovenator, which is what they used for their sort of scaling, I guess. It's about 24 feet or 7.4 meters long, and it would have weighed somewhere in the kind of one to two ton range and been over six feet tall. So it's big, but it's not massive. But we're still talking late Jurassic, not Cretaceous when you get to the T-Rex kind of scale for the most part. So pretty big dinosaur for the time. And Neovenator, just for context, is known from the Isle of Wight in the UK, but it's from the early Cretaceous, not the late Jurassic like this guy, so this one's at least 15 million years older. They also found, in addition to that foot and the big chunk of tail, some fragments of the right femur and tibia, which you'd think might be good enough to name a new dinosaur, because a lot of times they base it on sort of like the femur or hip bones. The skull is really one of the best ones. Maybe but it looks too similar. I think that's the case, yeah. So they could use it to sort of identify which group it belonged to, but there wasn't anything real special about it. And the way they phrase it is, quote, no autapomorphy or exclusive character combination can be recognized in the specimen here described in order to describe it as a new form, end quote. So that basically just means it can't be named as a new dinosaur because it's not unique enough. Yeah, nothing that they can point to. Yep. Autapomorphies are in paleontological context, characteristics unique to that specific animal so that you can say, if you find a bone that has these things in common with other dinosaurs, which are the synapomorphies, but it has this special little bump <laughs> or bend or whatever, then it's this new dinosaur. Is that the same as diagnostic yeah. characteristics? Yeah. yeah, so that would make it diagnostic but it's not. And if they had named a new dinosaur, people do this all the time. They find something like this and they're like, oh, it's this awesome foot. Nobody's ever found a really cool foot before. And then they name a new dinosaur and they call it like great foot that we found in Latin. But then somebody comes along a couple months later and goes, well, when you compare it to these other dinosaurs, 
they all had similar feet or we didn't find feet of previously named ones and there's no way to really assume that yours is something special and then it just gets invalidated anyway. So I like it when people are conservative in not naming new dinosaurs and jumping the gun that way because it's kind of frustrating when I would say most of new dinosaurs get invalidated later or synonymized because people get too ambitious with their naming. I think it's been happening less over the years. I don't know. There's been a lot more discoveries lately, and it takes a few years before they get invalidated usually. So time will tell. (laughs) It is a really cool find, though, because they say it's, quote, the most complete pez of a theropod known from the upper Jurassic record of the Iberian Peninsula, end quote. And so they're hoping that it might be helpful in identifying track makers in the area because we have found a lot of tracks in Spain and Portugal and northern Africa, sort of that area. So you might be able to take this sort of foot plan and compare it with some of the footprints around and you might be able to sort of figure out what types of dinosaurs were moving where and things like that. But unfortunately, when you can't link it to a specific dinosaur, it's a little less useful. It's just one piece of the puzzle. You can find more things later. Yeah, hopefully what they do is they just find, because they they already said that they found another similar individual in the area. So maybe they can find another one that overlaps slightly with this. Like maybe there's part of the tail and it's from the same formation. And then, you know, it also has a skull and then we can combine it. And now we have the foot and the skull and part of the tail. That's kind of the way you hope things work out in paleontology, at least. <laughs> It often doesn't work that way, but we can hope. We've got a lot of museum news. So the first item is that the director of the National Museum in Rio, Brazil, Alexander Kellner, said that he's, quote, extremely confident about what he saw in the museum when they looked around. For reference, that's the museum that had a large fire and basically burned down about a month ago, and many specimens were lost. Part of the museum collapsed but didn't burn. And that means that there's a chance to preserve what's underneath. So over the next six months, they're working on stabilizing the building and placing a temporary cover over the old palace. And then they can start rescuing the collection. But first, it's a safety issue. And the next step is for them to get National Congress to increase next year's budget to rebuild the building. And if that happens, Kellner said he thinks the museum can reopen in about three years. They never talk about the status of the fossils in these reports, so it's kind of annoying because that's what we want to know. It's like, well, what are they finding? How are the dinosaur bones in there? They haven't found anything yet because it's not safe to enter. So they only have a few people a day going into the building and they're working on stabilizing it first. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's why we don't know. And then there's, it's not all the way collapsed too. So they're probably worried about those kind of remaining stone outer walls collapsing in or something like that too. Mm -hmm. But hey, bright side. Yeah. So we'll see. And like we said in previous episodes, they were in the process of digitizing and maybe things like this will motivate other museums to digitize their collections. Yeah, I hope so. In happier museum news, the Dinosaur Gallery at the Australian Museum has reopened. It was closed for about six months for renovations and updates, but now they have the life-size T-Rex that they used for T-Rex autopsy. Oh, nice. That was donated to the museum by National Geographic, and apparently that T-Rex's name is Lizardbeth. (laughs) Visitors can see inside her heart, lungs, stomach, and ovaries because, you know, they cut her open for that T-Rex autopsy short. Oh, that's so cool. I'm glad they put that on display somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder why it that show was on a long time ago. Where has it been all these years? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they had to clean it up because I know they added things to make it smell. Oh, true. And yeah. then they cut up a lot of the stuff inside. Oh. Maybe they had to f- stitch it back up or something. Yeah, they might have like reused the outer, sort of like the museum that they're rebuilding. Might have had to rebuild the inside of this T-Rex. Lizard Beth. <laughs> yeah. It's a good name. It is. So maybe when we're in Australia, Garrett. Yeah. Swing by. Hopefully, see Lizard Beth. Hopefully we can make it to Australia and also <laughs> to the Australian Museum. Yep. In New Mexico, the New Mexico Museum of Natural History Foundation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, has a campaign to bring an animatronic version of the Beastie Beast dinosaur for permanent display. The Beastie Beast fossil is a Bestahi Verser celiac skull and jaw, and it's of a tyrannosauroid. Cool. In 2016, the fossils were shipped to Japan, where they made a replica of the skull, and then eventually... They also made a full-size animatronic that blinks its eyes and moves its tail and head. The museum foundation is trying to raise $120,000 to buy that animatronic by spring of next year, 2019. Wow. Would be cool. The Royal Tyrrell Museum recently shared an interesting post about 3D printing a Displeistosaurus skull for display. So their specimen is too delicate for the display, the actual bones. Most of the pieces of the skull are also too fragile for traditional casting, where they make the replicas. So they used photogrammetry to make 3D models of each piece of the skull and printed the pieces. Oh, wow. And then they took photos of each piece of the skull with scale bars to make sure they had accurate measurements. And then that allowed them to create digital models of each side, and then they made a 3D model. Lots of steps. Yeah. To give you an idea, they took 277 photos of the pre-maxilla to build a three-part model to make a digital version. And then they created the 3D printed cast. It's pretty cool. Yeah. In South Carolina, the Upcountry History Museum in Greenville has a new exhibit called Dinosaurs, Land of Fire and Ice. It's a traveling exhibit that was made by Minnesota Children's Museum. It's in Spanish and English. It displays warm and cold dinosaur environments. You probably guessed fire and ice. (laughs) The exhibit includes sculpted dinosaur models you can touch. There's facts about dinosaur colors and textures. And they also show the process of scientific discovery to help show a connection between science and history. The Land of Fire section shows dinosaurs that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Montana, includes Triceratops and T-Rex. And the Land of Ice section shows habitats that dinosaurs lived in in what's now Alaska, and that includes Edmontosaurus. If you're in the area, the exhibit's open from now until January 7th. On October 24th, the Texas Energy Museum in Beaumont, Texas, is hosting a Dinosaur Day from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. So if you're married, you should stop by. They have activities such as painting paper mache dinosaurs. Could be fun. And last, there's nine-year-old Elijah Stevenson, who won first place in the Kern County Fair in California for his dinosaur exhibit, which was a very well-done exhibit. He has over 100 dinosaurs in his collection. He's loved them since he was a toddler. In this exhibit, there's a lot of dinosaurs from Jurassic World I saw, the Wafasaurus and T-Rex and others. It's pretty large. It has its own table or display area. And there's pictures of Elijah with a glue gun. So it looks like he put a lot of work into it. And it paid off. So, great job, Elijah. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. 
Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Hadrosaurus which we decided to bring this one up because it was mentioned in Jurassic World and in the Jurassic Park book. And it's also just a very well-known and important dinosaur. Yes. If you're wondering, though, for Jurassic World specifically, you can see it in the hologram at the Innovation Center in Jurassic World. It's on the Jurassic World website, and they talk about a herd of hadrosaurs stampeding during a T-Rex attack in the first book. Which I think just got replaced with Gallimimus in the movie. Yeah. Which I think was actually kind of a nice change because they look more bird-like yeah. and it's kind of fun. Yeah, that was a cool scene. But anyway, Hadrosaurus lived in the Cretaceous and what's now North America, and its name means bulky or large or sturdy lizard. It was herbivorous. It had four limbs shorter than its hind limbs. It was mostly quadrupedal on four legs with a long tail, but it could be bipedal at times. It weighed around 7 to 8 tons, and it was about 25 feet or 7.6 meters long and 10 feet or 3 meters tall. It was the first named hadrosaur, and so it's the type genus of Hadrosauroidea and Hadrosauridae. And that's why we talk about hadrosaurids and not (laughs) some other sort of hadrosaur name. Yep. (laughs) And that's probably why you're surprised we hadn't covered this yet. Because we talk about so many hadrosaurs, Mm -hmm. but not hadrosaurus. (laughs) (laughs) So many hadrosaurs, they had crests on their heads. Some were solid and some were hollow. For hadrosaurus, the skull is unknown. So we don't know if hadrosaurus even had a crest on top of its head. There's only one species. It's hadrosaurus foci. And hadrosaurus was found in 1858 in the Woodbury Formation in New Jersey in the U.S. And it was the first dinosaur known from more than a few teeth that was found in North America. They found one specimen only, and it included parts of the skull and the skeleton. John Hopkins was digging in a marl pit back in 1838 in Haddonfield, New Jersey, and found some bones, so he put them on display at his home. Then in 1858, William Parker Folk, a naturalist, learned about these bones when visiting Hopkins in Haddonfield and dug out the skeleton from the marl pit. 
Folk worked with Joseph Lady, and they found limbs, a pelvis, parts of the feet, vertebrae, some teeth, and parts of the jaw. And then Lady described it in 1858 and named it in honor of Folk. Lady wrote a monograph in 1860, so lots of details, but then the American Civil War delayed the publication until 1865. Lady found that Hadrosaurus was similar to Iguanodon, but the skeleton was more complete compared to what had been found of Iguanodon at the time. The site, which is known as the Hadrosaurus Foci Lady site, is now a National Historic Landmark. So this site was actually lost for a while, but then an Eagle Scout, Christopher Breeze, rediscovered the dig site as part of his project to earn the Eagle Scout title in Boy Scouts of America. And the dig site coordinates, they were lost shortly after the skeleton was dug up. But in 1984, Breeze used old maps and found the location and then cleaned up the garbage that had piled up on the site. And his team marked the spot with a 700-pound stone, which now has a plaque on it. The site is at the end of a cul-de-sac in a suburb. They have a table there that people put their dinosaur toys on, and then neighborhood kids come in and swap out the toys when they want to play <laughs> with new ones. And we know this because we visited there. Yeah, when we were living in New Jersey, we took a little pilgrimage down to this significant piece of dinosaur heritage. Yes, but we had no idea it was in a regular neighborhood. So when we were driving there, we kept thinking, is this right? <laughs> yeah. This can't be right. Because you're just getting to the end of a residential street where it dead ends and then you see a little plaque and you're like, oh yeah, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a sort of ravine that goes along the neighborhood, which is why it dead ends there because there's a ravine and also a dinosaur. <laughs> yep. At least there was. <laughs> and this lovely tradition with the table and the toys. Yeah. The Hadrosaurus was the first mounted dinosaur skeleton back in 1868. Lady said that Hadrosaurus was bipedal because it had large rear legs with the tail dragging on the floor and that it walked upright in the tripod position. And that was kind of common in the beginning of figuring out dinosaurs. They also thought it was bipedal because of tracks in England. There was a bipedal dinosaur. Also the discovery of the Tyrannosaur Dryptosaurus in New Jersey in 1866. And Thomas Henry Huxley had this idea that dinosaurs were bird-like, which he was right. But that doesn't mean they were all bipedal. Yes. Hadrosaurs were definitely not bird-like, <laughs> but other dinosaurs were. Yes. So now the thinking is that Hadrosaurus was mostly quadrupedal, but could have reared up to get food that was higher up, and it may have been able to run on two legs to get away from predators. Yeah, especially the young ones. Yeah. Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, who made the Crystal Palace dinosaurs in London, including the one of Iguanodon. And a team mounted the Hadrosaurus, and that was put on display at the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences, which we also saw. It's not too far from the site. Yeah, it's pretty close. Hawkins sculpted a plaster skull because no skull was found. The Academy started charging admission for the first time for people to see that mount to keep the crowds under control. <laughs> Hadrosaurus was also the first dinosaur mounted in Europe when a copy was made and mounted at the Royal Scottish Museum in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1879. Because the skull wasn't really found, Hadrosaurus for a while was thought to be too incomplete to compare to other Hadrosaurus for classification and was actually considered to be a nomum dubium. Then Dr. Albert Prieto Marquez, David Weishampel, and Jack Horner thought that it was too similar to other hadrosaurs in 2006 even. Then in 2011, Prieto Marquez found that the hip was distinct enough to keep hadrosaurus as a valid dinosaur. Yeah, when you see the mount of it, it's not the most compelling thing because there are very large gaps right. <laughs> in what they actually found. Just like little bits and pieces from a few different bones. And an outline of the shape. Yeah. Sort of like a real-life silhouette that they made. Yeah. 
Hadrosaurus is the official state dinosaur of New Jersey, which makes sense. Actually, fourth graders from Haddon Township worked for four years to make Hadrosaurus the state dinosaur. The teacher, Joyce Berry, said, quote, We were known as the shortest lobbyists, but the loudest, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> and Governor Jim Florio signed the bill into law back in 1991. Yeah, and there's a big sculpture of uh, Hadrosaurus named Hattie in Haddonfield, pretty close to where the discovery was, too. Yes, that one is... It's giant. It's eight feet tall, 1,200 pounds, built in 2003, known as Hattie because it's in Haddonfield and it's a Hadrosaurus and is made by John Giannotti. Yeah, I think also it's called Hadrosaurus because it's from Haddonfield. Yeah. So it's like circular. Yeah. There's also a creek called Hadrosaurus run by the site where it was found. Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins had planned to have something similar to London's Crystal Palace in Central Park in New York, but... Hawkins apparently didn't like Boss Tweed, who ran the area at the time, and then Hawkins spoke out publicly against him. So in retaliation, Tweed's men broke into his studio and destroyed all of his dinosaurs, including one of a hadrosaurus. So the project fell through. Yeah, that's a huge bummer. But as he mentioned, you can see a replica of hadrosaurus at the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences, the one we saw. The original bones are still there, just not on display. But yeah, like we said, the outline. The hadrosaurus holotype was found in marine sediments, so the body may have been transported by a river to a sea. And in case you were wondering, predators of hadrosaurus included tyrannosaurs, giant crocodiles, and dromaeosaurs, and troodonts, for at least the juvenile ones. They would have been small enough for troodonts to go after them. And our fun fact of the day is that humans and some dinosaurs really birds in this case, both have massively reduced tails that are basically just a few fused bones. And in birds, it's called a pygostyle, but in humans, it's called a coccyx. And the main difference is that ours doesn't have a huge plume of feathers <laughs> sticking out of it. <laughs> it doesn't always have birds either, but often. And I couldn't find really any other differences. I think it's just different names for a very similar bony structure. Randomly, there is also a bone called a Eurostyle, which is pretty similar, but in frogs. What? And <laughs> yeah, so that one's kind of weird. It's a little bit longer and narrower, and I don't. Frogs have a really weird skeleton in general, but it turns out that a lot of animals lose tails, and then they usually don't lose them completely. They have these little bony remnants, and then you got to call them something. And we always come up with something new. Apparently. Something style. Yeah. <laughs> or six. Oh, yes. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss out on any new episodes. So check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Down, up and watching me walk on my dinosaur.